Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content of these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Start out by saying happy Halloween to everybody, and I hope you're having a great month so far. I know that there's getting to be cooler weather now in Arizona, and hopefully we will see the light at the end of the tunnel here soon and have the heat snap break. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founder and senior partner for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I represented HOAs and condominiums in the state of Arizona for over 26 years. My firm currently represents over 1,000 planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. And I also currently serve on my HOA board, and I have served as a board member for many years. Today, we're going to be conducting our virtual First Friday free call-in. First Fridays are a great time to get your questions on Arizona HOA and condo law answered at no charge. Here's how First Fridays is going to work today. If you haven't already done so, please be sure to submit your First Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comment section on Facebook Live as soon as possible, and then I will answer all questions between now and 10 a.m. Just a quick friendly reminder, due to the large volume of questions that we receive, this free opportunity is limited to one question per association. If you plan on submitting a question live during this session, please be sure to include the name of your association and your current role when you submit your question. Thank you for understanding. Oh, one more thing, if you're submitting a question live, be sure to make it really clear because there's no opportunity for me to ask a follow-up question if I don't fully understand the question. Before we get started today, I just want to do a quick reminder that the Arizona legislature had five bills that were passed this year pertaining to HOAs and condominiums, and they all go into effect on October 30th, 2023. At our Mulcahy Law Firm HOA, Virtual HOA and Condominium Academy with the Neighborhood Services Departments, for around the valley, we're going to be talking about these five bills in depth. So make sure that you're thinking about joining us so that you get the scoop on the five bills before they all go into effect on October 30th. Just a reminder, our Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy is always the third Tuesday of each month at 11 a.m. So tune in this month because we're going to be doing an in-depth detailed discussion of all the laws that are going into effect on October 30th. Okay, just a quick reminder. This time of the year, we start thinking about holiday decorations, whether it's for Halloween. In a couple months, it's going to be for Christmas, Hanukkah, and any other holidays that you may be um, celebrating over December's time period. Just a quick reminder that we're going to be having a memo on this coming up next week. And for those of you who may not be familiar with our memos, if you sign up for our mailing list by contacting me at bmulcahy at mulcahylawfirm.com, each week we send out one or two articles that we think are you know, timely and relevant and important for you to hear about. So we're going to be discussing next week um, holiday decorations, and we're going to be giving you some suggestions on how to best handle that. I think the most important thing to remember is try to have a policy in place for your association on how you handle holiday decorations. 
And if you contact me uh, at bmulcahy at mulcahylawfirm.com, I'm happy to give you a sample one that we've done for other associations. But, and we'll also be sharing that in our memo next week. But bottom line is you should have a time period for it when the decorations can go up and when they can go down. You should kind of address anything that, that might be um, any decorations that might be offensive to somebody else. And, you know, we give you just a whole number of suggestions as to the best way to handle holiday decorations. So tune in for that. If you get our memo next week or make sure that you reach out to me. Also, another thing to think about is uh, next week is going to be fire prevention week. And there are a lot of tips out there for associations to consider fire safety. This is especially important for associations that are condominiums. And we shared an article on our Facebook page from Mulcahy Law Firm earlier today. Um, on fire prevention and fire safety. And we're going to be sharing that with you now as well on this presentation. So just make sure that you take a quick peek at it. And especially if you're a condominium, uh, so that you're doing everything you can to prevent fires in your condominium. Okay, let's shift gear and answer our questions for today. It looks like I'm just scrolling down to see how many questions we have. Oh gosh, we have a lot of questions, 35. So great, great turnout today. It looks like we also have about 42 people joining us on Zoom and a number of others joining us on Facebook Live. So great turnout today. Thanks for being here. Okay, first question from a board member. I would like the correct scenario for mail-in elections for board members. Currently, our HOA has always done that mail-ins are sent to the HOA's mailbox. Any current board member has access to them. Last year, there were a lot of homeowners that said they had not received a ballot. Is there any way to avoid this problem? Okay, so I think what you're asking is, okay, so what's the correct scenario for mail-in elections for board members? First, you you just want to handle the election of directors consistent with your association's bylaws. So you need to take a peek at your bylaws. Some things that come up with elections of directors are, is the ballot required to be secret ballot under your bylaws? Most of the time, that is not the case. But sometimes your bylaws will indicate that the ballot has to be a secret ballot. If that's the case, there are some steps, additional steps that you need to follow to ensure that it is kept secret. In this case, I'm not hearing that you're saying that. So if you're asking for how, what the best scenario is, check your bylaws, number one. Number two, follow Arizona law. There's a specific law on mail-in ballots. This We have a cheat sheet that we talk about this. Our top 10 cheat sheet talks about mail-in ballots and absentee ballots. So you need to comply with that particular law. In terms of, so you said your HOA is always done that mail-ins are sent to the HOA's mailbox. It's typical that the ballots are sent to the HOA or the HOA's management company. That's very common. Board members having access to them, that's probably not common in terms of, I don't know what you mean by access, but the ballot should not be opened until the day before the meeting or the actual day of the meeting just to start counting them, especially if you have a very large association, you want to get a little bit ahead of the ballots. But the current board members, especially somebody who's running, you know, they really shouldn't be checking what the results are as the ballots come in each day. That's not appropriate. I don't think that's happening here, but I'm just mentioning that. If you have a homeowners who's saying they're not receiving their ballot, they need to be contacting the association in writing and verifying that their address is correct. And if they didn't receive it, they certainly can request a copy of the ballot prior to the meeting. Okay, next question from an owner. At the September call-in, my question was, is a draft budget considered an association record, thus available to association members? Your answer was yes. 
please provide the basis for the answer as that response has been challenged by a board member. Okay, so great question. If you're creating a, any sort of a document that your association creates, right, is a book and record of the association. So typically when a budget is created, there are usually several different versions of it until you get to the final version of the budget. And so that's a book and record, right? It's something that the board is discussing at a board meeting and assuming that it's a written proposed budget, draft budget, that's a record of the association. So the basis for the answer is that you need to go and look at the statute in Arizona. I don't know if you're a planned community or if you are a uh, condominium, but basically it's the books and records uh, statute. If you go to our top 10 cheat sheet, which you can find on our webpage at mulcahylawfirm.com, um, number 10 on that is the books and records statute. And you can provide that to um, your board member. There's nothing in that document that says just because, or that law that says just because something is a draft, that it is not a book and record at the association. And so what I would recommend is that you provide a copy of our cheat sheet. You can go back and provide this clip because this clip will be on Facebook Live if you want to go back and let the board member listen to it. If you want to just look at the statute yourself, you can go to ARS 33-1805 if you are a planned community or ARS 33-1258 if you're a condominium. And that will give you the direct link to the books and records statute in Arizona. Okay, question three from an owner. The association's bylaws state that there shall be a minimum of three board members and maximum of seven. Currently, there are just two board members. Can they hold a legal board meeting? Short answer on that would be yes. And here's the breakdown of why. You have to have a minimum of three board members. A quorum of three board members is two out of three. So if there are two board members, that's a quorum, and they can conduct, conduct a board meeting, a legal board meeting. Next question, number four. Is there a state statute that states when you legally have to do what you legally have to do to hold committee meetings and when a board discusses board positions, is that done at an open notice meeting? Okay, so first question. Is there anything under the law that states when you legally have to, to do to hold committee meetings? Well, the open meeting law in Arizona talks about committee meetings in that if it's a regularly scheduled committee meeting for your association, and that's defined as like the architectural committee meets the first Thursday of every month at 10 a.m. That would be considered a regularly scheduled committee meeting. If you have a regularly scheduled committee meeting for your association, you need to follow the open meeting lot, just like you would for regular open board meetings. So short answer would be state statute. Um, we have a actually a cheat sheet just on this topic too, on association committee basics that you can take a look at. You can also look at our open meeting law cheat sheet. So basically what the state statute is, is open meeting law. If you are a regularly scheduled committee, having regularly scheduled committee meetings, then it needs to follow the open meeting law. If you aren't regularly meeting, then there are no requirements under a state law, although you may want to look at your bylaws for your association to see if there's any special requirements. The other question was, is there a state statute that states when a board discusses board positions, is that done at an open notice meeting? There is a state statute, obviously, same law, the open meeting law, where it talks about when you can go into executive session and when you, you know, you can't. So basically, this is when you're talking about 
board positions, and I'm guessing that this is like officer positions, that when you're voting on it and you're deciding who's going to be what for the next year, um, or maybe even you're replacing somebody who maybe resigned from the board or moved and they're no longer on the board, that needs to be done in an open board meeting. And here's why. Because the executive session topics that you are allowed to go into for executive session, it, it this doesn't fall under that. So I'm um, talking about which position board members are going to be, which officer position is not legal advice from an attorney. It is not pending or contemplated litigation. It's not personal health or financial information about an owner. So, and it's nothing to do with independent contractors or employees of the associations that, you know, the way to describe it is it doesn't fit into the closed meeting sessions topics. So therefore it needs to go with the open meeting session topics. And this is like an easy no-brainer one for me. So I think that you just need to communicate to your board that when you're discussing board positions, this 100% needs to be done in the open uh, board meeting. Next question, number five from an owner. What is the purpose of a management company? By that, I mean, does a management company simply take direction from the board or is the board to take direction from the management company? Should the management company be familiar with the governing documents of each community they represent in order to keep the board within the rules and laws, or is that the board's responsibility? This is especially concerning when the board has turned over all position responsibilities, president, vice president, treasurer, and secretary to the management company. Okay, a couple things we're going to do. I'm going to share with you a podcast that our firm has did within the past year about effectively working with management companies and vendors. And so I really recommend that you take a look at that because that gives a deep dive on this topic. But short answer would be, what's the purpose of the management company? The purpose of the management company, if your board has hired one to work with them, is to follow the terms of the management contract of the association. And that typically, you know, it changes with every contract, but typically, you know, it involves the management company paying the bills of the association, sending out correspondence to the owners attending a board meeting once a month or maybe more frequently or less frequently, depending on what the management contract says, inspecting the property for violations, making sure that the association is carrying adequate insurances, making sure that the association is turning over delinquent owners to the association's attorney, guiding the association. However, the management company is not giving, it's a, it's a balance here. So how do I say this properly? So Ultimately, the management company takes direction from the board, right? The board sets policy. The management company needs to follow the management contract. It's a team relationship, though. So, you know, we don't want to be in a team. Everybody has to come to the table and work together, right? And the management company is a supporting role, and the board makes decisions and gives the management company direction on things. Now, of course, if the management company has a suggestion on if the board's taking a, a wrong turn on something or if the board's not following the law, the, man, the board should be listening to the management company um, because they should be there to help you make good decisions. That's part of being on a team, your team trying to make sure that the corporation makes good decisions here. Sometimes we do see management companies overreaching a little bit and they're telling the board, this is the way we do it. And if you don't like it, you can leave. Of course, that's never a good thing. That's not how a team operates, right? Team works together. And sometimes the board treats the management company that way too. And that's also not good. So it goes both ways. So just remember when you're working with your management company, they need to follow the management contract, number one. 
The board needs to be giving them direction on how to handle things in the community. The board should not be delegating everything to the management companies to handle. You have an oversight responsibility and you need to be overseeing them. Um, you need to work together as a team and listen to their feedback. If they think that you're not doing something right, listen to it, reach out to your trusted advisors, get their opinion on, on the advice that the management company is giving you. Basically, you all need to work together, right? The last question is, should the management company be familiar with the governing documents? Absolutely, of course. That's a no-brainer to me. And that, that's it for that question. So I encourage you to take a peek at our podcast on this. We, we do a deep dive on this topic because this is not the first time I've heard a question like this. Okay, next question, number six from a board member. I recently became treasurer of my HOA. And while I was suspicious of some billing, I had no access to the data previously. I do have access now. And I presented a scenario to our attorney of a blatant overstated billing covering two years. Our attorney agreed that we, we could terminate that vendor without delay, yet I'm still seeing bills from this vendor. Hiring and firing is supposed to be done in an open session. Do I really have to wait for an open meeting to terminate a vendor for cause? Great question. So new board in place, it sounds like new treasurer, you, of course, the person who's asking this question, and you feel that there has been blatant overstated billing, right? And the attorney for the association took a peek at this and they said, okay, you can terminate this vendor right away without delay. You don't have to wait. So I think your board needs to rely on the advice of your attorney. Um, you've already sought legal counsel on this. I would say have an emergency board meeting and just terminate the vendor so that you don't have any more billing issues here. You're wondering, do I have to wait on an open meeting to terminate a vendor for cause? You can give 48 hours notice to have a board meeting to terminate the vendor. It sounds like your attorney says you can do it without delays. To me, that means likely that you can just go ahead and have an emergency board meeting and, and terminate that vendor. Okay, next question, number seven, from a board member. Our president resigned a few months ago. She refuses to hand over HOA documents. Legally, what can we do as a board? So first, we have a great cheat sheet on this topic called Community Association Records and Documents. So I'd encourage you to take a peek at that. How do we handle a former president who won't give documents back? I wish I could say that this is an unusual circumstance. It's not. We see this frequently. It really kind of drives home the fact that the corporation needs to have their own copy of records of everything. Like no board member should be the only person that has the records for the association. Something to keep in mind, especially for self-managed association. What I would recommend is if the president's refusing to turn over the records, and these are the records of the association and not her personal records, I would suggest that the board write her a letter, her or him a letter, and um, tell that person that we understand that you have records that pertain to the association, belong to the association. We're asking that you turn them over to us within X amount of days, or we will turn this matter over to our attorney. If that time period runs, then have the attorney get involved, have the attorney call the board member and write a letter to the former board member to get the documents. In some cases, you can't get the records back. Sometimes they destroy them and you just have to move forward. So we'll have to evaluate that when that situation, you know, when you get a response from the board member in terms of whether or not she still has the records or what her position is on the records. Okay, next question, number eight. Is it legal for the CCNRs to require prior approval from the Architectural Review Committee for any alterations to the interior structures? 
such as the inner walls, et cetera, of the homeowner's home or only alterations that will get visible from the outside, like from the street, neighbor's properties, et cetera. Okay, so really good question. You gotta look at the language of the CCNRs on this one. Basically, it says specifically what sort of authority your architectural committee has to review applications and what types of changes require approval from the architectural committee, et cetera. Typically in a planned community, what you do in a home is not typically inside the home, is not typically scrutinized by the board or the architectural committee. Obviously, plans are submitted when a home is built, but if you're like painting and, you know, maybe doing some minor renovations in a a home that's in a planned community, it's typically not something the association gets involved in. In a condo, it can be more tricky because if you're moving walls in the interior, you could be moving load-bearing walls, and that could be something that could affect structural integrity of the building. So we really just have to look at it on a case-by-case basis, depending on what type of an association you are, planned community or condo, what your documents state, and what exactly the person is doing in terms of the construction or renovation. Okay, um, we also have an architectural committee cheat sheet on this topic that we've shared with you. Um, you may want to take a, a look at that. That gives a deep dive into how the architectural committee functions in an association. Next question, number nine, from an owner. An HOA board is spending more than the HOA brings in. So it appears that the board is ignoring this fact, even though it has been brought up. HOA management in 2022 put together a budget that was missing many monthly expenses. The owners have not been notified of the budget shortages, and the board has not increased the monthly assessments in over a year and a half. Our reserve is very low now. Who is legally responsible for this issue, as it appears that the board or management company has not been fiscally responsible? Okay, so great question. So what do you do when you have a shortfall in income and your expenses are higher? So honestly, the board really should be talking about this every meeting when they're looking at the year-to-date budget. So this should not be a surprise to anybody. It should be discussed at the regular board meeting each month. I don't, I'm not at your board meeting, so I don't know if they're evaluating the year-to-date budget, but that is the best practices here. If the board is taking money from the reserve account to pay, you know, regular expenses for non-reserve items, that money really does need to be replaced and you need to talk to your CPA about that, put back into the reserve. That's what I mean by replaced. Who's responsible for this issue? If your reserve is low and you're not balancing your budget and you're overspending, I mean, ultimately it's the board. The buck stops at the board. So they make the decisions on the money. So um, I think your board needs to take a hard look at things as they're doing their budget for 2024 and address these issues. Question number 10 from a board member. Can an HOA prevent homeowners or tenants from working at home? That is working remotely from the privacy of their home or residence. I believe 25% of American working population work at least part-time in a remote capacity. Again, this, this is from a board member. So I think we have to look at what do your documents state regarding you know running a business out of your home. I think things have really changed since the pandemic and there are probably more than 25% of the American working population working from home at least one day a week. And so I think from my perspective as an attorney that's advising boards, if you have somebody who is working from home, nobody can detect it, meaning that there's no clients coming to visit them at their home. There's no noise, no smell, no employees coming in every day, parking you know, in front of the property. 
it's not something that the board should be getting involved in because you don't even know that it's happening, right? People log on from home all the time to check in at work. However, if you have somebody that is like running a chiropractic business or some other type of business where there's traffic of patients coming in, or maybe a lot of deliveries, 18-wheeler trucks are bringing in pallets of stone or something, something like that. Obviously, that's a different situation. And in those cases, you need to check in your documents to see what they say about operating a business out of a home. And you also need to check in with your city, county, or town to see what their restrictions are on operating a business of this nature, because likely that's not going to be allowed under the CCNRs or the city, town, or municipalities regulations. Okay, next question from a board member, number 11. If our CCNRs are silent on this issue, does the 20% yearly assessment cap as specified in the planned community statutes apply to condominium associations? If not, how does a condominium association know which planned community statutes or nonprofit statutes we need to follow in order do we take when or and in which order do these statutes take precedence? Okay, so this is a good question from a board member. Okay, so you're a condominium based upon the reading of this question. So you are subject to the Condominium Act in Arizona and you are subject to the Nonprofit Corporation Act. Because the Condominium Act is more specific, you should be following that first. If there's a gap, you should be looking to the Nonprofit Corporation Act to give you a gap filler if the Condominium Act doesn't address a certain issue. Now, on the issue of the cap on how high an association can raise the assessment rate each year, if the documents don't have a cap in them, um, that 20% cap that's mentioned in the Planned Communities Act, that does not apply to a condominium. Of course, we look at the Condominium Act as a, okay, if we're not quite sure how to handle something, we look at that in terms of, well, maybe a judge might think that that's reasonable approach to it. And if we try to go way over that, it might be instructive to a judge that, well, this is how planned communities handle this issue, but it's not the law for condominiums. So really good example on this, you know, in addition to the 20% one is like the late fees, right? So the Planned Communities Act puts a specific cap on the number of late fees or the amount of late fees that you can charge. It's either $15 or 10% of the assessment, whichever is greater. Condominiums don't have that in the Condominium Act. So condominiums, if you go crazy and you start charging $150 late fee on something that might not be considered reasonable, even though the statute doesn't put a cap on it. And so you just want to be careful to be aware of what the Planning Communities Act says, but just know that you're not required specifically to follow it. If you're a condominium, you only have to follow the Condominium Act and the plan and the uh, Nonprofit Corporation Act, but only as a gap filler because the precedence would be first follow the Condo Act because it's more specific. And then for gaps, anything that's not in the Condo Act, then you can look to the Nonprofit Corporation Act to help you fill those gaps. Okay, next question from an owner and a former board member. While our governing documents provide authority for the board to adopt and modify policies, should these discussions and modifications be discussed and adopted in an open session meeting forum and communicated to members in written form? Your board's making some policies or making decisions on things. Anything that is an open meeting topic 
should be discussed in the open meeting. Is the board required to blast out to the community? We know what the new policies are. I mean, it depends. If you're passing new rules, you would want to blast them out because you want people to follow them, right? But maybe you're just deciding that you're going to only put a winter lawn in three of the four patches of common areas. You know, you're not necessarily required to do that, but good communication would be to tell people so that they don't get upset when they see one green patch going yellow or whatever. So a good thing to do is just have the minutes of your meetings on the association's webpage. So anyone who's interested can see what's going on at any time. Next question from a board member. We have a unit where police are called weekly due to the owner and his partner disturbing the peace, cursing, fighting. Neighbors are very angry with the board that it hasn't gotten rid of the offenders. What legally can the board do? Can the board seek to have the woman permanently removed from the premises? Okay, so these are really tricky situations where you have basically like an an owner causing a nuisance in your community, right? And disturbing the peace. And neighbors think the boards can just get rid of this person, get rid of this person. I don't know if the, I guess it says the owner. So I guess the owner is a record owner of the property. We can't evict an owner um, and his partner for disturbing the peace. We cannot force them to move. Okay, so that's an important baseline that we need to talk about. There are some things that we can do to try to curb the behavior. One would be encourage the neighbors to call the police when there are problems. Um, and it sounds like the police may already be there. Document what's happening on the property. So have a little notebook and keep track. The neighbors should be keeping track of how many times the police are coming and the noise levels and reporting that to the management company or the board. Once this escalates to a point where this is problem and the board's receiving complaints from neighbors, you should have the association's attorney write a letter to the owner and cite the nuisance provision. You're creating a nuisance. Start finding the owner. Consider um, filing a lawsuit against the owner for violating the nuisance provision. You may even want to consider going to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and getting a ruling from an administrative law judge that this is a nuisance. The more that you can pursue the owner and document in writing and take legal steps such as fines or maybe even a lawsuit or filing a complaint with the Arizona Department of Real Estate, the more likely you are to see a curbing of the behavior, bad behavior by the owner and his or his or her partner. Calling the police and documenting it that way is very smart. Then get a copy of the police report or the police incident report so that the association has the paper trail, official paper paper trail from the city, town, or municipality as to what happened during the call. Please feel free to reach out to our firm. We handle these type of situations all the time, successfully handle these situations all the time. And sometimes it you know, I pick up the phone and I contact the owner if the owner's a problem or the landlord if the tenant's a problem. And these are usually put to rest pretty quickly once we're involved. Okay, next question, number 14 from a board member. Our CCNRs prohibit the use of mobile basketball hoops, but not permanent ones. This frustrates many homeowners. I've heard that if we direct our management company to stop enforcing this portion of our CCNRs, it can open us up to selective enforcement issues in the future if people sue the association trying to enforce other parts of the CCNRs. Is that true? Our CCNRs have no language about granting variances, even if we wanted to. 
Okay, so we have a great cheat sheet that we're going to be sharing with you on enforcement of governing documents. Please take a look at that because it outlines what the different procedures are that we can use for violations like this. So number one, if mobile basketball hoops are prohibited under your documents, the board can't just go around that and say, we're not going to enforce that anymore because it's a contract and the board is required to enforce it. And if an owner doesn't want mobile basketball hoops on their neighbor's lot, the board is breaching the contract, the CCNRs, by not enforcing it against the owner that has the illegal mobile basketball hoop. So first things first, the board can't just decide not to enforce it, okay? The suggestion of somebody to direct a management company, hey, just stop enforcing this provision of the CCNRs, you really can't do that. The argument that, okay, if we stop enforcing that mobile basketball hoop, that means that we're selectively enforcing, I guess what you said, it can open us up to selective enforcement issues in the future. If people sue the association for trying to enforce other parts of the CCNRs, I mean, I, I don't agree with that statement for a number of reasons. Well, if you're not enforcing a, a certain part of the CCNRs that's not related to the basketball hoop, it just doesn't make sense, right? We're not going to create a situation where if we don't enforce the basketball hoops, that now we can't enforce anything else in the documents. That's not the case. What? Let, let's give an example. Let's say that there is a provision in your documents that says that no sheds are allowed. And let's say that 60% of the units or lots in your association has a shed on their property and you haven't been enforcing it, even though the CCNRs say you have to. Basically, what happens is if that many people in your community have sheds, 60%, you have basically lost your right to enforce that because um, you waived your right to enforce it because so many people have it. And there's been a disregard of the shed provision in your CCNRs and you can't effectively enforce it anymore because so many people have it, you know, a super majority has it. But just because you didn't enforce the shed provision in your CCNRs doesn't mean that, you know, you can't enforce something else. It only applies to that one. But that being said, I'm not in favor of the board directing the management company to not enforce the mobile basketball hoops because people are frustrated about this. What I would suggest is just do a CCNR amendment and get rid of it, take it out. If that many people are frustrated about it, you'll get the CCNR amendment to pass quickly. Okay, next question from an owner. A prior owner, past president, and current vendor for a property is calling owners up and asking to vote for a current owner and an employee of his who works on our property. This person is also a current board member. Is this legal for him to solicit votes for this member? I have made our management company aware of this and that they should be they should halt him for doing this. Okay, so let, let's look at the facts here. We've got a prior owner. So this person doesn't even own an association anymore. And this person is a past president, I'm assuming, of your association. And now this person is working as a vendor for your property. Okay, this doesn't sound right <laughs> to me. The facts on this aren't good. Not for the reason that you're raising, but for other reasons. So, you know, it just seems unusual to me that a prior owner and a past president of the association is now a vendor for your property. That seems kind of odd. Regardless, this person is apparently trying to solicit owners to vote for a certain candidate. Can this person who doesn't live in your community solicit votes for this member? I mean, I guess. Is this person going to have any sort of clout? I don't know. 
but it's unusual that this person would be doing this. And I would think that people who are on the receiving end of this call are probably rolling their eyes thinking, this is odd. Why is this former owner who is a vendor for a property calling me to ask me to vote for a candidate? So I don't think you can control this behavior. It's odd and problematic, but you can't control it. So you can't control other people. I would move on and have faith that your owners are also finding this to be something that's odd. Okay, next question from an owner. There is an owner in our condo community that has been parking a large commercial van with the markings of the company he works for for several months. Our CCNR state, no commercial vehicles shall be permitted within the project other than temporarily for loading and unloading passengers or personal property. This owner has been cited by management for this violation, but has not complied. What is the next step and how is this different from an owner that drives a public utility van? A couple things. So I don't know if this owner works. I mean, he works for the company, but is he the owner of the company? I don't know. Sometimes a quick way to resolve this is to call the company and say, hey, this van is being parked here every night and it's against our CCNRs. Um, And lots of times the company just takes care of it because they don't want to have the hassle of the problem. If it's a little more tricky, if the person parking the vehicle, it's like their vehicle or their company, right? And they own the company. So if you call the management, it's them and they're going to you know, not be real receptive to moving, parking this van there every night. So if, if that's the case, or if the company blows you off and doesn't get involved in this, what I would do is turn it over to our firm, have our firm reach out to the owner and also send a letter documenting all the legal things that can occur if they don't stop parking the commercial vehicle on the property. If I do a phone call and I send a letter, usually this goes away. So just help, let us help you handle it quickly. How is this different from an owner that drives like a utility van for, you know, one of the utilities that might have special protections under Arizona law? So if somebody is an emergency responder and it's classified by statute that they may have to take their vehicle home with them for emergency response. Um, The association cannot do anything about that. That's not the case with the facts you're providing with me here today. And unless the owner is providing information that they work for one of these public service companies that they need their vehicle for emergency responses, that's not going to apply here. Okay, next question from a board member. We're on question number 17. And again, just a quick little 39 questions total this morning. Okay, we recently installed new cameras at our pool to help with increasing vandalism. The offenders are often teenagers and we cannot identify them. Are we permitted to email their photos to our homeowners to assist with identification? We heard it may be illegal to do so with minors. Interesting. As the summer comes to an end, this is just a a typical problem that we're seeing right now with teenagers or kids damaging pools, whatever. Um, I think what I would do on this is I would reach out to your local police station and ask for their opinion on this. I have seen associations do this, so but you want to find out that I don't know the exact law, frankly, on minors. Can you distribute a picture of a minor? I would guess because they were trespassing on your property and causing damage that that is something that you would be allowed for identification purposes to provide. But check with your police department, see if there's anything illegal on that. I'd probably have to do a little more research about distribution of photos of minors without their permission. 
So I can't give you a definitive answer on that, but um, my inclination is it's it's probably okay, but we need to do a little more research to make sure 100% it's okay. Okay, next question from a board member. I understand a homeowner may submit a petition to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and appear before an ALJ, meaning an administrative law judge, to resolve a dispute with their HOA. Specifically, what type of HOA issues may be brought to the ADRE? Okay, what I recommend that you do is Google ADRE and Arizona HOAs or ADRE and Arizona condominiums. And the website for the Arizona Department of Real Estate with the link to the section that deals with disputes between homeowners and homeowners associations or homeowners and condominium associations will pop right up. So bottom line here, what type of issues can be brought to the ADRE? Only issues between the owner and the association, number one. Only issues with regard to disputes regarding the CCNRs or state law regarding planning communities and condominiums. That's it. For the deep dive, go check it out. Uh, we're going to be sharing with you in the group chat the dispute process and how to handle it, the link to that. Um, for those of you who may be listening after this broadcast, future date, that is azre.gov backslash consumers backslash HOA. Question 19 from a board member. Our reserve fund is down to 13% funded. So we need to set up a plan to build the fund faster than we have in the past. Is it legal to establish an owner's fee that is separate from the HOA dues that would go directly into the reserve fund? Perhaps a monthly fee. So check out our cheat sheet on reserve funds. Um, we have some great information in there and I would recommend that you start there. Second, if your reserve fund is down 13 to down to 13%, you really need to get the reserve company back out to your property and um, have them create a new reserve study or update the numbers so that you can come up with a plan to get that funded back to 70, 80, 90% funded. And they can tell you how much you'll need each year to do that. Now, can you do some sort of a special fee? Like you said, is it legal to establish an owner's fee separate from the HOA dues? Any sort of a separate fee like that, in my opinion, would need to be part of an amendment to the CCNR, so like a capital contribution fee would need to be in compliance with what state law requires or specific requirements. And one of those requirements would be that it has to be in the CCNRs that you can charge the fee. So you probably have to amend your CCNRs to do that. And there are some other requirements for that as well. Take a peek at our cheat sheet on transfer fees and disclosure fees. You know, that might be a good starting place too, in addition to the reserve study cheat sheet. You need to get advice from your attorney for sure on this. So reach out to our firm so we can help you. Okay, question number 19 from a administrator in a general manager's office. So it sounds like this is on the management side. If the association purchases a residential property for future planning and development, can the association rent out the property to seasonal renters for the current winter season? I mean, there's a lot of issues on this that, um, so I don't know, do you allow short-term rentals for seasonal renters? Does your association's documents allow you to do that? That's an important consideration here. Does the board have the power and the authority to do this under your documents? Can you buy a property? Can you get rental income? I'm guessing you've already gotten a legal opinion on this just to buy it. But if not, you need to reach out to myself or your attorney to talk through these issues a little bit better because without question in my mind, owners will question this and you want to have that legal opinion ready saying that, hey, we talked to our attorney and we can do this. 
Okay, next question, number 21. Our board had on the agenda to selectively remove and not replace aloe and agave plants in the parkways. During the meeting, one of the board members stated that they are past their lifespan as they only live five to seven years and changed it to remove all agave plants. Several board members said personally they do not like agave plants. It was voted four to one. I have beautiful agave plants in front of my home that are healthy. Can they remove healthy plants because they personally do not like them? They said the ground cover will take over. Agave flower at 10 to 20 years, so that was misrepresented. You know, it's really hard for me to comment on this without hearing both sides and talking to the landscaper, right? An expert um, or somebody that is an expert in this area. I mean, one of the bad things about being on a board is majority rules, right? And in this case, it looks like it was voted four to one that they want these agave plants out. You're probably outvoted on this. Now, whether or not the reasoning was sound or not, I don't know because I didn't hear what the landscaper said and I don't know enough about this issue, plant issue, to comment on it. What I would recommend that you do is if they haven't been removed yet, you may want to write a letter. You're on the board just expressing your concern, asking maybe to have the lawyer come in and talk about this with the board and the landscaper. If you haven't already heard the landscaper weigh in on this, if the board ultimately doesn't decide to do that, it's unfortunate, but you will just have to accept it or decide to pursue legal remedies, get your own attorney outside from the association to contact the board on this issue. Try to work it out. Try to talk about it with the board and see if you can come to some sort of a resolution. Maybe an agreement can be made that the owners that want to keep their agave plants can keep them. And when they die, then they can be replaced with whatever the board currently wants instead of the agave plants. Okay, next question, number 22. My association, and this is from an owner, my association told my realtor, I'm selling my property's background, that there is a 1% transfer fee. They have no documentation. It's not in the CCNRs. Do I have to pay it? Like I said in a couple of questions ago, we have a great cheat sheet on disclosure and transfer fees. I would recommend that you take a look at it. I don't know how much the actual dollar amount for the transfer fee is going to be because I don't know the value of your home. It's 1% of your home. It does sound, based upon what you're telling me here, that this doesn't appear to be a valid charge because it's not in your CCNRs. There is a section in the Nonprofit Corporation Act that allows for a transfer fee, but it needs to be de minimis, so very small, to cover the cost of changing the books from one owner to another owner. So and that's probably like $100. Based upon what you're telling me, I have some reservations about what's going on here. Take a look at our cheat sheet. You may need to get your own attorney to help you with this problem. Okay, next question from a board member. Our HOA had a dues increase for the past several years until last year. Current board is watching OPM and last year delivered a balanced budget coming in under budget with surplus cash. Homeowners are delighted. It's nice to hear. We received the 2024 draft budget from the management company and they suggest no dues increase for 2024. The question is what factors or criteria should an HOA consider when determining whether to increase dues when there is a surplus in the cash account and expenses come in below budget and only minor vendor increases for the 2024 budget. Um, I really recommend that you take a peek at our cheat sheet on budgeting, creating a budget for your association, because we go through all the different factors that you need to look at. 
when you're deciding your budget for next year, 2024. And basically you look at what happened in 2023 and you know where were you under budget? Where were you over budget? You talk to your vendors. Are there going to be any increases with your vendors? You look at your reserve study. Are there any big capital improvement projects that we're going to need to be doing this year or any you know unanticipated repairs that were taken um, or that were made in 2023 that we might see in 2024? So there's a whole bunch of different things that you need to look at when you determine your budget for the next year. You're asking for what factors should we consider to increase dues? That goes hand in hand with the budget when you're creating budget because you're looking at the income needed to meet the expenses. So take a look at our cheat sheet on this. I think that'll be helpful. Question number 24, committee chair. I mean, again, that's the cheat sheet on budgeting. And you can find that on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, next question, 24, from a committee chair. My master association is in the process of updating its governing documents. We are including a provision in our CCNRs providing for the assessment of a capital contribution fee, aka transfer fee, on future new homeowners and are abiding by the requirements of that statute, ARS 33-442. Should a separate reserve account be established for those fees or is a separate accounting within our general reserve sufficient? Also, can the neighborhood associations in my community assess a capital contribution fee as long as they abide by the requirements of ARS 33-442. Okay, so transfer fees and capital contribution fees. We've had a couple questions on that today. Should a separate reserve account, meaning like a separate bank account be established? You can do it, whether it's required or not, I don't think it is. As long as you're documenting on the ledger for the association, what money this transfer fee versus what money is in the reserves, you certainly can transfer it and segregate it, put it in a separate account. Um, you may want to talk to your CPA about this and get their opinion on it too. I mean, obviously, if you just want to have good documentation on this, best practices would be to segregate it and keep it in a separate account to comply with the law. But I do recognize that some associations don't do that and they get around that by documenting it and writing on the ledger what money belongs to capital improvement fee or the transfer fee or the capital contribution fee, and what is um, just the general amount that's been in the reserves. The next question on this, can the neighborhood association in your community assess a capital contribution fee? I'm a little bit thrown off by neighborhood association. I'm assuming you mean sub-association. And if they are in fact planned community or a condominium, yes, of course, they can assess a capital contribution fee as well, but they have to comply with the law as well put it in the CCNRs and follow everything that's required under 33-442 Arizona Revised Statutes. Okay, question number 25 out of 39. This question is from a manager. Welcome. Our association would like to have an association-specific open house and for sales signage. Can you speak to best practices on how to do this? Other surrounding communities have uniform for sale and open house signage. The goal is uniform and aesthetics, not to prohibit, of course. With respect to governing documents and the Arizona article sign requirements, can an association do this or do their documents have to allow it? Appreciate any insight. Okay, so just like, I guess let's back up and talk a little bit about what the law is. So owners are allowed to have a for sale sign on their property. You could try to get voluntary compliance from owners by saying the sign has to be used 
if you have an owner that pushes back on this, it really does need to be somewhere in your documents. Best practices would be in the CCNRs. Depending on how broad your rulemaking authority is, you may be able to put it in the rules. Probably not, though, because most documents don't have that broad rulemaking authority. So talk to your association's attorney about this and come up with a plan. Okay, question 26 from a board member. We have a homeowner who refuses to paint. He has not painted in many, many years. He insists he does not have to follow current paint colors. He insists only painting on the home the original paint color. He says state law prohibits an HOA from requiring an owner to change their original house color. Is this true? So I would say, no, I'm not aware of that. And I do not believe, based upon my 27 years of experience, that that is accurate. His last ARC sent was asking for a pink interior color, obviously not an original color. Is there really a law? Arizona legislature has not addressed this topic in painting. You know, if an owner has not painted in many, many years and they need to maintain their property because the painting is chipping and peeling, et cetera, they just need to submit an application to the architectural committee, assuming your documents require that or paint change. And then the board evaluates the color. Maybe you have an approved color palette. They have to put something in that color range for the approved color palette or use the exact colors that are recommended. They can't, you know, rely on this is my original house color and I want to repaint it that way. That's not how it works. They have to get approval. And ultimately the association's architectural committee will make the decision on that. Okay. Question 27 from a board member. Our HOA has bylaw rules against parking in the service drives. We ask members to park in their garages, on the street, or in designated areas at the rear of our buildings. A member with a disability license plate continues to park a pickup truck in the service drive in front of their patio, despite being asked and warned not to do so. Can we escalate our warnings and fines? We have a fine policy to include towing the vehicle. Well, a couple of thoughts. We got to be careful on this one. We have a cheat sheet on federal laws, which really does apply here or may apply here. So I would encourage you to take a peek at that. Um, you can find that by going to our website at mulcahylawfirm.com and go to our cheat sheets. Click on the federal laws cheat sheet. I think there's some fair housing issues here. Under the Fair Housing Act, um, we cannot discriminate against members who have disabilities or owners or residents who have a disability. It appears possibly because of the disability license plates that there could be an issue here in terms of this person having a disability and they may need to park there because of that disability. I don't know. And if that's the case, there may need to be a reasonable accommodation to allow this person to park there. So what I recommend that your association do is I recommend that you reach out to the owner and ask for more information. State that we notice that you've been parking your vehicle. And as you know, our documents require that the vehicle be parked in the garages, on the street, or in designated areas at the rear of our buildings. We have noted that you have a disability license plate, and we want to find out more information about why you are parking here. I would not directly go to fines because the Fair Housing Act obviously protects any owners with disabilities. And once you get the response from the owner, you probably need to reach out to our firm or to whoever your counsel is to discuss what your options are. You may have to allow the owner to park there as a reasonable accommodation under the Fair Housing Act. Check out our cheat sheet on federal laws on this because it contains some really helpful information. 
Next question, number 28 from a board member. How can an HOA legally obtain current contact information, such as a mailing address, phone number, etc., on a new buyer of a property in the community when it is not provided on the title company's HOA demand request form? This situation is becoming more and more common that, than not in our dealings with title companies. So sometimes when there is a change in ownership, for whatever reason, you don't get all the information about the new owner. So there's a couple of ways you can handle it. Well, first, our firm can help you. We have we subscribe to and have access to a lot of different people locator systems. And um, we will likely be able to find their email and their cell phone number very easily for you. So reach out to our firm, number one. Number two, you could knock on the door and ask them for the information. You could send a letter to the property address. If they have an offsite address, you can you know, maybe find it on the Arizona Corporation Commission's, on the Arizona Assessor's website. If they get their property tax bill mailed to an offsite location in Michigan or something, you know, you'll find an address that way. There's lots of ways that we can reach out to the owner to get this information. So keep those in your back pocket and remember that our firm's here to help you if you need it. Okay, next question. Past board meeting minutes have an issue published with no recording of a vote or action taken. For example, 2010 minutes state, to be on the board of directors, an owner must live at the HOA property a minimum of five months per year. No vote or action is recorded. One past board member quotes the recording as policy. Since no vote was recorded, should that recording be enforced as policy by the current board? Okay, multiple issues here. First of all, state law does not allow associations to prohibit people that aren't residing in the property all the time from being on the board. That's part of state law now. So several years ago, as part of um, some of the rental new legislation regarding rentals in an association, condominium or planned community, there was a, a section that was added that say that said specifically that an association cannot prohibit a non-owner from serving on the board or, excuse me, a non-owner resident from serving on the board, which is exactly what you're trying to, to do here with this policy or whatever. And so you can't put like the board has to live on the property 11 months of the year, five months of the year, any months of the year. That's contrary to what state law says. Now let's flip over and talk about these policies from 2010. Ultimately, if you don't like whatever the policy was from 2010, undo it in 2023. Have the board vote that our policy on this is this going forward. And then definitely take a vote of the members, you know, the board members and have that documented in the minutes. Okay, next question from a board member. Can you collect on delinquent special assessment fees? What's the legal rule? I'm guessing that your association just had a special assessment and you want to either charge a late fee or you want to file a lawsuit on it. Um, you absolutely can do that. I know your association is a planned community because I recognize the name and you're one of my clients. In a planned community, you can collect a late fee of 10% of the assessment or $15, whichever is greater. Um, that can be a late fee on this issue. And you also can pursue the special assessment delinquency just like you would pursue any other violation of not paying your regular assessment delinquency. You know, you can file a lawsuit, justice court, you can foreclose on an owner. These are all the different options that you have. You also typically can file a lien or record a lien with your quarter's office for non-payment of a special assessment. 
Okay, question number 31. And again, we have 39 total questions. So we're almost to the end. What is the dollar amount of which the HOA may foreclose on property in the HOA community? So there is a state law that talks about benchmarks for when an association can foreclose. Um, an association in a planned community or condominium uh, must wait until the assessment is $1,200 delinquent in assessments only, or that the assessment is one year delinquent. So they haven't paid the assessment for one year. And the statutes that go with that are 33-1807 for planned communities and 33-1256 for condominiums. So that will give you the specific dollar amount that I just mentioned, the link to it. If you have any questions, obviously, if you're looking to foreclose on an owner, we also want to make sure we do a 360 review of the owner to make sure that they have equity in the property because you don't want to foreclose on a property that's upside down. Talk to our firm about researching what's the value of the property, how much do they have in mortgages or deeds of trust on the property, is there equity? Because that's the smart way to foreclose because we'll get all of our money back. Either the owner is going to pay up or an investor will buy it at the share of sale and will be made whole. Next question, number 32 from a board member. Our annual meeting and election of new officers is coming up. In the past, the association has sent out ballots and had the members sign them before returning. The new board would like to get away from having identifiable information on the ballots themselves. We're looking at mimicking the Arizona election process where the completed ballot gets put in an envelope and the envelope gets signed. Then we have a record of who voted, but not who they voted for. Is that something that would work? And do you have any templates that you could share that might help? Okay, a couple thoughts. Unless your association has in its bylaws that secret ballot should be used, I really don't recommend using secret ballot for annual meeting elections. If it's in your, your bylaws that you have to use secret ballot, then you got to do it or amend your bylaws to get rid of it. Just as a kind of a starting point, whenever we're amending CCNRs and we see that secret ballot language in there, we always take it out. And here's why. Because state law doesn't require it, number one. Number two, it's confusing for the owners on how they vote. And usually when they vote, they screw it up. And then we end up invalidating 10 or 15% of the ballots because they sign the ballot or they put their unit number or lot number on it, or they don't put do the envelopes right. We really advise against doing this. So if your association is thinking about doing this, it's not something that we're recommending if it's not in your CCNRs or bylaws. If you're gung-ho on doing this, then you do need to hire, you know, attorney, either another attorney or a firm to help you with the forms. It's not something that we have templates that we share. Um, it's just we would create them specifically for your association. Okay, next question, number 33, from a board member. Can a member run for a board seat if they have a criminal record or a felony? Surprise, surprise. I have had this question before. So can they run or is it a good idea that they run? Are different questions, right? Can they run? Yes, unless your documents have some sort of a prohibition on it. The one thing that you need to know is that if they are elected on the Corporation Commission annual report that the board's going to be filing, you're going to have to disclose that because one of the questions on the annual report is, have any of your board members been convicted of a felony? And if so, you have to explain it with more information. Is it a good idea? It's concerning to me as legal counsel for the association, especially if it's a felony in the form of like embezzling or white collar crime thing. I, that would raise antennas for me for sure. Then I knew the follow-up question that you didn't ask is, can we tell people 
that this person has a felony when they're when we send the ballots out or when people are voting on this to you know discourage them from voting on this. I don't think the board should be involved in that, but if an owner wants to you know provide factual information about a candidate, they certainly have a right to do that. Okay, next question, number 34 from a board member. If a board declines to add a comp- capital contribution fee for new owners to the CCNRs while they are being updated, could that be considered a breach of fiduciary duty? Reserves are at 78%, projected to reach 100% in 2050. Can the capital contribution fee be tied to monthly assessments, such as a year's worth of current assessments? Okay, so lots of questions there. So first things first, if the board is doing an amendment to the CCNRs and they choose not to put a capital contribution fee amendment in there, allowing them to charge capital contribution fee, is that a breach of fiduciary duty? No. I mean, it's not something that you have to put in your documents. It's something that associations who are not fully funded in their reserve or not anywhere near funded in their reserve are doing to try to generate you know, money for their reserve. Um, you went on to say that your reserves are at 70, 78%. That's awesome. You're lucky. You're one of the few associations that's in a really good position here on your reserve. So the final question that you posed was, can the capital contribution fee be tied to monthly assessments? a year's worth of current assessments. So I'm not really sure what that means. Like, I guess maybe you're asking for like, it shouldn't be tied to the monthly assessment would be number one. And a capital contribution fee is a separate fee that's charged typically at the time of a sale. Um, What you can charge, you know, with the assessments, what you can factor in when you're, you know, coming up with your budget for 2024 is you can say, we're going to take X amount of dollars from the monthly assessment that comes in to fund our reserve. So like my association where I live, we take about $35,000 every month from the assessment income that comes in and we move it over to our reserve account. And that's all in our budget. So everybody knows that's how we're trying to keep our budget funded. Okay, next question. We have a community pool with lots of rule violations, including propping gates open. We've sent out rules many times. Hard to catch the residents violating rules. Is closing the pool for the weekend an effective way to help enforce the rules? Okay, so a couple things. We're sharing a blog with you on pool safety. Please read that. I cannot tell you how heartbreaking it is to see the news stories Every year when it starts to get warm in Arizona, you know, like in April and May and then throughout the summer of drowning. So please, please be careful. And this is something that your association needs to address. Take a look at our pool safety blog. In terms of your pool and the rule violations, propping the gates open, maybe you need to consider having some cameras installed. Maybe you need to have a gate that doesn't allow it to be propped open. You need to make sure that you're communicating with your residents how important it is and why not to prop the gates open. Is closing the pool an effective way to help enforce the rules? No, because you have an obligation you know, to have these amenities open. I just think that somebody knows who's propping the gates open and whether you catch them with a camera or another owner tells you, you need to enforce that and make sure that they stop doing that going forward. If you have in-house security, they should be doing rounds and if that gate is propped open, they need to be all over making sure that doesn't happen again in the future, closing it right away, et cetera. Okay, uh, next question, number 36. Our community has narrow streets and garages for two cars and storage. There is no parking on the street and driveway at night. How do we address those residents where there are more than two cars parking, there are more than two cars and now they're parking on 
the driveway. Okay, so you have narrow streets and garages for two cars. So you can't park on the street or the driveway. So what do we do when we have owners that have three cars? So their garage only fits two, and now they're parking on the driveway. I think that what you should do is it's a violation, right? And you need to reach out to the owner, just like you would handle any other violation. Send them a violation letter. Open the lines of communication. Give them a phone call. Ask them, hey, what's going on? This is against the documents. How do you propose to fix this? See what they say. If you can't get them to agree voluntarily to stop doing this or they have no other choice, is there another location on the property that they can park the vehicle like a visitor spot? Is that something that the board would be okay with? If they continue to violate it and you can't come to some sort of a resolution that works for both sides, get your attorney involved. Contact our firm. We can help you with this. We've handled many parking disputes in the past and have been able to creatively come up with solutions. Next question, down to the last three. Uh, Number 37, how is money in the HOA reserve fund actually managed? For example, is the fund composed of a separate bank account with disbursements limited to pre-designated projects, or can a majority of the HOA's board simply vote to use the funds at will for any significant capital improvement, maintenance project, or other purpose? So this is a really good question. So is it a separate bank account? I don't know. It depends. Every association sets up their reserve differently. How do we handle bursements or withdrawals? Does it have to be money for pre-designated projects? You know, and I don't know if by that, do you mean like, do you map out a plan for 10 years and that's how we spend the money? Or can the board use the funds at will? Generally, the board manages the reserve account and they make the decisions about how the money is spent. My opinion is typically the board, in theory, they are the ones that vote to how to use the funds. Now, that being said, the board really needs to be looking at the reserve study in terms of how the reserve study is, you know, advising them on how to use the funds effectively based upon the useful life of these different components of our common areas. But ultimately, the board makes a decision, but they should be making an informed decision after talking together as a board, after looking at what the amenity is, is it needing to be repaired or replaced sooner, and then looking at the reserve study as well. Okay, next question, number 38 from a board member. Is there anything in the Arizona Revised Statutes that would stop a board member from being a non-homeowner? We are a condo and I haven't been able to find anything under Title 33 or Title 10. Our CCNRs do not specify board director's qualifications. Our articles say a non-association member can be on the board and our bylaws state the board is made up for members only. I think the articles take precedence. You're right on that. They do, unless state law supersedes. So you're right. Your articles of incorporation state that the owner, that to be on the board, you have to be a member of the community, which means that you own a property. Your articles of incorporation say that non-association members, so non-owners can serve on the board. Okay. Your bylaws say you have to be a member of the association or an owner to serve on the board. So bottom line here is there's a hierarchy of documents and the hierarchy is the plat, the CCNRs, articles, the bylaws, the rules. And so because the articles are higher in precedence under state law and your articles say non-association members can be on the board, that trumps the bylaws. You may want to amend that provision in your articles so that you know, you just take that out because obviously I personally don't think that non-owners, 
you know, should be serving on an HOA board. These sections were typically written when the developer was running the board. And sometimes the developer had friends, family members, employees of their company serving as the board, and maybe they didn't own properties in that association. So it's an outdated provision, and I don't think it's in the best interest of your association. So I would suggest that you vote to change that. Okay, next question. Our HOAs created an architectural control committee for the purpose of maintaining architectural and aesthetic integrity and consistency within our HOA, the project. The CCNR states that the ACC may adopt and amend from time to time architectural control guidelines consistent with this section and the project documents. The CCNRs are silent as to the board of directors' role vis-a-vis these documents. If the ACC adopts or amends architectural control guidelines that are consistent with the project documents, to what extent, if any, is the board of directors empowered to actively influence, revise, or rescind such guidelines? Okay, good question. Complicated. Compound questions. Okay, CCNRs set up an ACC, Architectural Control Committee. That's pretty standard. Everybody, you know, most associations have that that are playing communities. The purpose of that committee under your documents was to maintain the architectural and aesthetic integrity of your HOA. That's pretty standard too. The CCNRs go on to state that the ACC can adopt, you know, these architectural control guidelines that are consistent with the project documents, which means the CCNRs, right, and the bylaws and the rules. So the CCNRs are silent as to what the board does here, right? They seem to not be involved. So if the ACC adopts the guidelines and they're consistent with the project documents, the board really can't change those, can't influence or revise the guidelines because the documents give the architectural control committee the right to do this. But think about this. How can the board influence things? Typically, the board appoints architectural control committee. So if you're not liking the direction that the architectural control committee is taking, appoint people who are more like-minded or maybe have the board serve as the architectural control committee and then get those project documents, then get those architectural guidelines, you know, the way that you want them once you are in control of the architectural control committee. Okay, so that's it for today. It's about 1022. We got through all the questions in about under an hour and a half. So that's awesome. Thank you again for joining us today for our firm's first Friday virtual event. We had over 52 attendees here today on Zoom and many more live viewers on Facebook Live. So thanks everybody for being here today. Again, don't forget to join us for our 2023 virtual HOA Condo Academy class number 10 on Tuesday, October 17th, 2023 from 11 to 12 p.m. The topic for this class is going to be the legislative updates for all those bills that are going into effect on October 30th. And we're also going to be talking about hot topics in our industry right now. So it's going to be a great class. And I really encourage you to join us. You can learn more about the new laws that are going to be going into effect at the end of this month. And also to really start the dialogue on what are the hottest topics right now in our industry and what you need to know about those hot topics. Also, do not forget that we are doing an in-person seminar with the city of Scottsdale. There's a special symposium that they are putting on, um, and that is on Saturday, October 21st, and we're sharing the link with you, providing details. You also can find information on this in-person symposium on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Just go to our seminars page. Don't forget, our next live First Friday event is going to be on Friday, November 3rd, 
And lastly, please consider leaving our firm a Google review. Um, we're sharing the link in our chat on how to leave a review. We are always happy to get feedback from you, our valued customers, friends, attendees at these seminars so that we can continue to improve our service. It's especially helpful for me if you leave a Google review and tell us how you like these classes and if there's anything in particular you'd like us to focus on or any changes you'd like to see made. So thank you very much for being here today. We hope to see you again later this month um, on October 17th for our next virtual class. Take care, everybody. If I don't see you before Halloween, happy Halloween. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 